Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Today's episode is less scripted, less polished, rustic, if you will. Grab a chair and your drink of choice and get ready to hear all about George Washington. It's Unfiltered Soldiers. Hello and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. And guys, it's the holidays. I hope you're having a good one. Whatever it is you celebrate, and if you don't celebrate anything, that's cool as well. I'm just happy you're hanging out with me when you can be like spending time with your spouse or your children or your parents or something. Why would you do that when you have unknown soldiers to listen to? So today is the second of what I call unfiltered soldiers. What these are, if you don't remember, these are unstructured. There's no music, minimal editing, no no set breaks, no nothing. All I have is an outline, a beer, and a couple of books. I have a, for the beer, I have a New Belgium uh, Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA. It's an old standby of mine. I really like it. No source posts, no nothing. This is on, just me talking about a topic I feel like talking about. Not necessarily a super unknown topic. I'm not following my usual rules of forgotten wars, battles, campaigns, events, but just something I want to rant about. It's a method to get content to you guys faster and a breathing space in my very busy schedule. So today's episode is about a dude. Dude that seems almost like he's not a real person, but he was a real person with all the virtues, flaws, contradictions that come with being a real person. Man, the myth, the legend, sure, but at the end of the day, a man. But ain't we all? Today I'm talking about George Washington, the father of our country, the the general of the Continental Army, the first president, man on the dollar bill, you name it. I'm probably going to mix in some general American Revolution stuff while we're at it. I get off track a lot, and this is the time to do it, right? But I'm going to focus in general today, in this Unfiltered Soldiers episode, on Washington's early military experiences and his military career during the Revolution. I'm talking more about George the General, not George the Politician. That's for other podcasters. This is what I specialize in, so that's what I'm talking about. Don't worry, I'll still talk about like his personal life and stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be like, George was a soldier and nothing else. These are the battles he fought the end. No, I won't do that. I want to emphasize what I think was important about Washington's military career that people might not understand, that people might not think of when they think of George Washington the general. Because there are aspects of Washington's career before and during the American Revolution that are much more important to military history and American history in general than just the battles and just the fighting. And I think this is one of those contexts to the person Washington rather than the icon, the symbol, the untouchable image slash superhero Washington. And it's my goal to introduce this angle of Washington. Washington as a human being, a flawed human being, but Washington as deserved in a lot of ways of the credit he gets. So let's take a good look at the father of his country. Warts and all. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is always dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. Uh, There's no source post today, like any unfiltered soldiers, no bibliography. This is all off the cuff. I'll only consult books for certain dates or certain details or certain events. And when I do consult those books, I will let you know. And any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining. All this information is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story about a real person who maybe should be less of an unknown soldier. So let's meet George. 
My big goal, one of my big goals in this episode is to humanize George Washington, to make him seem like a person. Because he was a dude. He was just a dude. He, he put his pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else, just like you or me. Imagine George Washington, I don't know, walking into a room and forgetting why he went in there. Like, oh, what, what was I coming in here for? Or spacing out when his wife's talking to him about something. Or there's any number of things. Washington was a dude. At the end of the day, he was a dude. So I want to humanize him, make him seem less like an icon and more like a person. And there's no better way to do that than to talk about what he was like when he was young. Not just a child, but like in his 20s. Because, guys, we all remember when, how we were when we were teenagers and very young adults. And a lot of us don't like to think about that for very good reason. Because there is some embarrassing stuff back there. Believe me. And I'm, I'm totally included in that. Washington would probably be really happy that social media wasn't a big thing in the 1750s. Because Washington did not spring fully formed into being as the savior of his country. Someone had a lot of growing up to do, especially when he was an adolescent and in his early 20s. Washington might be uh, might be generously described as a brat, a twerp. Not, you, you read the stuff, I've read this stuff. I've read stuff in several different books about young George Washington, and there's no way to spin it well. It's A lot of it's just embarrassing, pathetic, not good. And he's just, you don't like him. He's whiny. He's arrogant. He thinks he knows everything when he doesn't actually know anything. There's a lot to dislike in young George Washington, but I'm starting from here so we know how far he came, right? Let's get there. Let's get there. So George Washington was born in 1732. The Washingtons were fairly successful. They were not the richest people in Virginia, but they definitely weren't the poorest or even middle class. They were fairly successful in Virginia politics and society before George was born. But he grew up without much of a formal education, strangely. Compared to a lot of luminaries of the revolution, compared to his own brothers. His elder brothers got formal learning in uh, English grammar school, but Washington did not. Washington got a very basic education compared to a lot of the other founders. Uh, Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton, the Adamses, Patrick Henry, they were all, generally speaking, better educated than Washington was. Now, he wasn't stupid. I mean, I will make this very clear. Washington was not uber genius. He was not the polymath. He was not somebody like... I would think of Napoleon as someone who has that spark of genius. Washington never had that brilliance that some people like Hamilton, Jefferson, or Franklin seem to have. And he he was educated enough to write well. He worked as a surveyor, so he understood ge geometry and trigonometry and stuff. But Washington also he didn't. He, his writing wasn't very funny or witty. No one would describe George Washington at any point in his life as a wit. He doesn't seem to have ever had much of a sense of humor. He, he could enjoy himself. He wasn't, you know, a complete Puritan or anything, but he wasn't a funny guy. He didn't tell a lot of jokes. He wasn't cracking jokes a lot. But Washington did resent the fact that he didn't have this education. He felt this very keenly. It was one of his big insecurities. And there's nothing. Washington was insecure. Washington was insecure about a lot of things. He was insecure about his lack of formal education compared to a lot of the other founding fathers. Jefferson, in particular, tended to make Washington feel stupid sometimes. He tried to... what Jefferson wrote about what he called Washington's slowness of mind, which was pr pretty, pretty rough from the guy who gave you your big job as Secretary of State, fella. But 
Jefferson was also kind of a, a butthole in many ways. Well, let's not get into that. Not talking about Jefferson here, talking about Washington. Washington's family. Dad died when Washington was 11 years old. He did have a surrogate father. Older brother Lawrence Washington was George's father figure in a lot of ways. So when dad died, when Lawrence took over George's upbringing and uh, may have heard the George Washington and the cherry tree story, that did not happen. That is made up. Someone made that up. There was a biography written of Washington in the early 1800s written by this guy named Parson Weems. And Weems basically thought Washington was Jesus, did never did anything wrong. And to show how good he was from the very moment of his birth, talked about the Washington, you know, cut down the cherry tree, but then he didn't lie to his father. And I'm like, that's, that's a pretty basic thing you want your kids to do is not lie. I don't think you should get that much credit for not lying. But, you know, just show how honest he always was. Parson Weems basically made Washington look like the second coming. And Parson Weems has actually become a byword for over-eulogizing, over-glorifying somebody. I mean, Washington was impressive enough. You don't need to make him a saint. He was not. So the cherry, thing, cherry tree thing did not happen. That was made up. Washington idolized his older half-brother Lawrence. Mount Vernon belonged to Lawrence. Uh, George didn't get Mount Vernon until long after he was an adult in 1761. Mount Vernon was named after Lawrence's commanding officer. The British were fighting the Sp Spain in this war. It's actually the same war as the um, 45, just a different front of it. There was this British admiral, a British admiral named Edward Vernon, who was leading attack on Spain's Caribbean possessions. And Lawrence Washington led a Virginia militia unit on this expedition. It was one of the first times American militia had served outside of the future United States, the 13 colonies. The attack on Cartagena failed, but Lawrence Washington admired that British admiral so much that he named his estate Mount Vernon after Admiral Edward Vernon. So yeah, the state of the father of our country is named after a British admiral. But what are you going to do? So, but Lawrence died in 1752 when George was 20. And Lawrence had pushed Washington towards a military career with all his stories of the military expedition. And when Washington was 13 or 14, Lawrence tried to secure a commission for him in the Royal Navy. And that's a, that's a wild alternate history, isn't it? What happens if Washington just becomes a random Royal Navy officer? But, you know, just, that was a possibility. But someone put the kibosh on that, and that was Mama. Washington's mom, Mary Ball Washington, is, uh, there's a lot of monuments for her. There's a lot of, like, historical markers for her. And, you know, she was the f mother of the father of our country. Washington and his mom had a bad relationship all through their life. Uh, sounds like Mary Ball Washington, Mama was critical, cold. He, he, he didn't follow the course in life that she wanted them to follow, just being a, basically a wealthy plantation owner, because George wanted the military career, and she hated this. Mary Ball Washington hated the idea of George going off to a military career. She was very cold to him, and even later in life, during the Revolution, she was causing trouble for him by raising a stink about how he doesn't send me enough money. He would almost never visited her. They did not like to see each other. Uh, she did not have a single word of praise for George, not even when he was leading the Continental Army, uh, chairing the, Continental, the Constitutional Convention, President of the United States. George wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. Also, Mary Ball may or may not have been a loyalist. She was widely known for allegedly having loyalist sympathies. 
So yeah, you want to humanize George Washington? Washington had a bad relationship with his mom. He never got on well with his mom. His dad died when he was young. We know people, if we, if we don't ourselves, we know people who've had troubled relationships with their parents. Washington was a dude. He had a bad relationship with his mom. He missed his dad. He idolized his half-brother, but then his half-brother died, leaving Washington much of his estate. So yeah, this is not a... um. I mean, even for this time period, it's, it's, it's kind of a turbulent upbringing. So when Washington is age 20 years old, age 20, he becomes, he gets a commission as a major in the Virginia militia. What was young George like at this point? Well, young George was extremely brash, extremely arrogant and headstrong, very whiny. I'll, I keep using that word, but I promise, like, that's, that's the impression that I get reading his letters. All the letters he was writing to everybody, very, very whiny, very self-obsessed, very arrogant, narcissistic almost, which might make sense because it sounds like Mary Ball Washington, mama was a bit of a narcissist too. But Washington definitely got this, this job as a militia major through family connections. He used connections, family, and good looks because Washington kind of looked like an officer. He was tall. He was fairly handsome. You know, he carried himself well. Ugh, looks like an officer. Let's make him an officer. You you laugh, but like that's this is how like most American militia officers were assigned for most of <laughs> this time period. Uh, yeah, he kind of looks like an officer. Let's let's make him an officer. What are his credentials? He doesn't have any credentials. Okay, sure. So his first job, his first mission that he ever gets, his first set of orders in 1753, Washington is sent to carry a message to the French in the Ohio River Valley because Britain and France are starting to both have their eyes on the Ohio River Valley, which which is still mostly uncolonized. Well, nobody ever really bothered to draw a line down the Ohio River Valley, so both Britain and France believed it was their territory. And the French had recently moved some troops from Canada into this area to set up a fort and everything. And Washington was told by Governor Robert Dinwiddie of Virginia, hey, go tell the French to leave the Ohio River Valley. The Forks of the Ohio, that's the main sites where all the rivers branch into the Ohio. So Washington goes up there. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. He has a bunch of crazy misadventures. I'm not going to get into it. But he goes up there. And he's like, hands over the message, like, you have to leave the Ohio. And the French are like, huh, no. And more, this is our territory, you get out. So Washington's like, I'm going to tell on you. And he has to go back to Virginia. He goes in this, this is a crazy little expedition. He writes this whole account of it. And it's like published in the Virginia newspapers. Everybody's like, oh, look at this young fellow. Make one on such amazing adventures. Look at his courage and his daring, etc., etc. He 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 walked to the French fort and walked back. Yeah, it was a crazy walk. Yeah, he almost got killed a few times, but that's how it was in the Ohio River backcountry in the 1750s. You went out there, you might get shot, much like Ohio now. So he had all these crazy misadventures, and so they promoted him, Lieutenant Colonel of the New Virginia Regiment, at age 22. 22 years old. He's a lieutenant colonel. Oh boy. All right. So Washington definitely did not act like a lieutenant colonel. And he knows less about the military. You listen to my podcast this last couple months. You know more about the military than George Washington does in 1754. It's not. It's not even close. It's. He doesn't know. He knows less about the military than a JROTC cadet because at least they know basic drill movements. He doesn't know how to recruit, train, or lead troops, doesn't know basic tactics, doesn't know anything about military engineering or fortifications, no idea how to fight or supply, or even like 
talk about war. This is going to go great. So he's not really a lieutenant colonel. Not really. Not Like, not in mindset. Yeah, he has the rank, but he doesn't have the brain of a lieutenant colonel. He has the brain of a second lieutenant. Worse, he has the brain of a cadet. But let's call him Lieutenant Washington. Second Lieutenant Washington. LT, what are you doing, LT? Why are you screwing up, LT? And LTs screw up. That's part of their job. LTs are learning. They have a learning process. I mean, if you've ever served in the military and you've been a lieutenant... Have you ever screwed up so badly you started a world war? <laughs> because George Washington did. LT George Washington screwed up. So here's what happened, right? He's a young officer. He doesn't know anything about anything, but he thinks he does. And he gets a bunch of troops who are the most miserable, unmotivated, like rejects the Virginia, that the colony of Virginia has to offer because no one with the right in their right mind is going to take that crappy pay that the Virginia government's offering to go off and fight the French and the Indians. Why? Who's going to be stupid enough to do that? Well, these guys, a bunch of slack jawed yokels, just, just the detritus, the, <laughs> the human garbage dump of Virginia, just like these, the, the, the criminals, the vagabonds, the drifters, just, just not, 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 Prime human material. I don't mean to say human garbage dump as in like these people were worthless. I mean to say that this these are the people that society decided they could do without and they basically pushed them to go join Washington. So Washington led his uh, miserable unit into Pennsylvania to build a miserable fort. Uh, he found out he was trying to go to the forks of the Ohio, but midway there, he learned the French had already gotten there and built a big fort. So he's like, I'll build my own fort. And he uh, built his own fort. It's in a, like the worst possible place. It's not even built correctly because he doesn't know how to build a fort. He doesn't know anything. And so it's like in the worst possible places, like in low ground. It's really swampy. There's like terrain all around it that dominates the fort. And, like it's surrounded by high ground. It's in a low, wet, swampy area. And he calls it Fort Necessity. Oh boy, oh boy, here we go. Then Washington learns, while his, his troops are still building Fort Necessity and making a hash of it, by the way, that the French, there's a French force coming towards Fort Necessity. This is 1754, so the Seven Years' War is basically about to begin right now, and Washington's about to frickin' start it. He's like, there's a French force coming towards Fort Necessity, and Washington's like, oh, the French are attacking, oh my gosh, the French are attacking. Guys, we have to go ambush them. And so he gets, he gets them very skeptical Virginia militiamen, and a few Indian allies, including this guy named Tanacrisson, the Seneca half-king, like he was a local Seneca notable, this local Indian leader. They go out to go ambush the French force. And they find the force in this glen, just hanging out. And yeah, they ambush them and shoot a bunch of them. Some are killed, some are wounded. Washington's first battle, eh, battle, quote-unquote. You can't see me, I'm doing air quotes. Battle. Congratulations on your victory, air quotes. But uh, Washington walks into the field and he just sees all these dead and wounded Frenchmen. He's just so, mm, this is this is how it is, huh? This is war. And he goes up to this French officer, the commander of the expedition. This is uh, Lieutenant Jumonville. And Jumonville is covered in blood because he got shot, which is what happens. Those It's those darn bullets they put in the guns that makes the blood leak out everywhere. It's, it's just un, it's unsanitary. But uh, Jumonville is handing Washington this document. Washington's like, huh, what you got there? Opens it up, and it is a diplomatic message asking the British to leave the Ohio country. Isn't that just what Washington did last year? 
you know, when he went to deliver a message telling the French to leave the Ohio country, uh, Lieutenant Jumonville had not been leading an attack. He had been leading a diplomatic mission, and Washington had ambushed it. Oops, it gets worse. While Washington is reading this letter, you know, uh, what does this say? Uh, he's reading this letter. The Seneca half-king, Tanacharison, walks over to Jumonville. He's like, sup? And just immediately scalps him. Just like, just tears the top of his skull off and just puts his hands into the Frenchman's brain. He's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's some hand lotion right there. I, I've, he washed his hands in his brains. Like, that's, that's, that's exactly what happened. He washed his hands in the Frenchman's brains. And Washington is just standing there like, uh, uh, his, his Indian ally is just turning this guy's brains into, you know, dove hand soap. And Washington has no idea what to do. Uh, uh, goldfish gaping. Yeah, yeah, Washington's first battle. And a French a Frenchman saw this and escaped and told the guys at uh, the local French garrison, like, yeah, the Americans just ambushed our diplomatic mission. And then the Indian wiped his, washed his hands in the commander's brains while the American looked on like he didn't know it was happening. And the French are like, oh, we'll deal with that. Uh, a particular Frenchman, because the local commander of the local garrison was Jumonville's older brother. Oh, yeah, Washington's in it now, man. That's This is a great start to a military career. And uh, Washington sends back an account of the battle where he defeated a French attack on his fort, conveniently, like, ignoring the message that he'd recovered. And, you know, just we're going to pretend that didn't happen. And George's account of the battle is widely published. Everybody reads it. Even freaking King George II reads George Washington's account of the Battle of Jumonville's Glen, where Washington says something dumb. He says something like, you know, the, the sound of bullets whizzing by your head is quite intoxicating or something stupid like that. And George II basically says, well, if he'd heard more of them, he wouldn't think that. Basically, George II had commanded multiple battles. He was an experienced military commander. In the Battle of Dettingen in 1743, George II was the last British monarch to lead troops in combat as a monarch. So, yeah. Interesting little bit of trivia there, by the way. This is George II, a guy who's not known for being nice for a lot of reasons. He's the guy who was king during the 45, and also the guy who refused to pardon John Bink. So, yeah, he's racking up quite a, uh, quite a, quite a naughty list in our podcast so far. It gets worse. So... As soon as Washington gets back to Fort Necessity, he starts preparing for a French counterattack. The French counterattack comes. It is a fiasco for Lieutenant Colonel George Washington. There's a part, there's an incident where he tries to lead his troops out to fight the French and Indians. They're standing in a very, in basically a mob, and the French and Indians are shooting them from behind the trees. Washington tries to order them to fire, then looks behind him, then they've all run away. It's like a Monty Python skit. But yeah, Washington's fort is in a pit, essentially, and it as soon as it rains, the fort starts filling up with water. <laughs> it's like the trenches are filling up with water. These dudes are trying to fight in chest-high water, and they're not good at fighting anyway. They're not motivated anyway. Uh, they eventually, Washington, like, okay, I got to negotiate for a surrender. So the guy he sends over to negotiate surrender terms uh, is, is the only person he has who speaks French. Washington doesn't speak French. So the guy brings the surrender terms back, and it's raining because, the you know, the trenches are full of water. It's raining. And he brings the surrender terms back, and the paper has gotten wet. So they're barely legible. So Washington and his officers, such as they are, are in their tent 
trying by to read this paper by can't this paper by candlelight. Only one of them reads French. He's trying to tell them what the words say, but the paper is soaked and the ink is runny, so they can barely read it. And at the same time, all their soldiers have gotten to the liquor stores already because like, oh, battle's over. Let's get drunk. And they're all wasted. So again, this is Washington's second battle. Great success. And he surrenders and the surrender document, he didn't know it because it was in French and he couldn't read French. But the surrender document basically accepts responsibility for assassinating Lieutenant Jumonville and says that, yep, the French were right. We don't have any claim to this territory. Washington didn't know that. He was just like, sure, give me that, and signs it and hands it over. And the French carry this back to Quebec and like, look, look, the America, the the British scum admitted they were guilty. And yeah, this is all really, 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 really pathetic. It does not look good for old George. So, wow, all right. I mean, and this basically ends up starting the Seven Years' War. This is the start of the French and Indian War slash Seven Years' War. Can you imagine? Imagine like some army lieutenant in the modern day just like ambushing a, a Russian platoon and starting World War III. Would you want that guy leading an army someday? But Washington was 22. He didn't know what he was doing. He, he had no idea what he was doing. And that is very evident, isn't it? But luckily, this is a low point. When Washington went back with his after this defeat and he resigns his commission, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's time I took a step back and thought about this stuff for a little bit because nobody can nobody looks at this and thinks I did a good job. <laughs> I mean, people somehow did. Like he was praised for his bravery and st for standing up to the French, but I think Washington knew at heart he's like no matter what they say in the newspapers about how wonderful I was, I screwed up. I need to learn some stuff. And he sets out to learn. This is a lot of people don't do this. A lot of people are, you know, dumb dumbs at 22 and they never stop being dumb dumbs. My point here is that Washington did not start out as the father of his nation. He started out as a little twerp who messes up and starts a war. But he sets out to fix himself. I mean, he doesn't really admit that. He doesn't, he never, he never admitted at the end of his life that he did anything wrong in Jumonville's Glen or in Fort Necessity. He was doing his best. He, he did some stuff wrong. He never admits it. Not, not, to the, not to the end of his days. Washington does not really admit wrongdoing on his own part. Not publicly. He very obviously corrects his behavior and changes what he's doing. He's the guy who's like, you tell him, hey, you messed up. No, I didn't. But then when you're not looking, he immediately fixes himself and doesn't do it again. That's a, that's, that's a mix of good and bad personal qualities, I guess. But then uh, 1755, the war with the French is basically starting. It's not declared yet, but they're fighting and everybody knows it. The British send some units to go fight the French, and they send a British general with them. And this is Edward Braddock. Braddock is famous in American lore for being a dumb, dumb British general who doesn't understand how to fight in America and loses a big battle, which is fair. Braddock leads his redcoats into the woods with almost no preparation and gets basically gets his head handed to him at the battle of the Monongahela in 1755, which is the first really big confrontation of the French and Indian war. Braddock is mortally wounded and killed in the battle of the Monongahela and his troops are scattered, suffer terrible casualties. It's a bad performance all around. But George Washington was on this expedition. He was not a commissioned officer, but he was serving as an, as an, a volunteer uh, on Braddock's staff. And 
Braddock liked George, and George kind of liked Braddock. George has already gotten a lot better and smarter, from even from just a year ago. And he is studying the British Army's units that have just arrived. These are the first redcoats that have really ever served in America. All the fighting up till now has been done by American militia, with a couple of redcoats, but not many. But Washington's watching the British. He's like, huh. Okay, watching their drills, watching how they pass on orders, how a military camp conducts itself, all this stuff that he's never seen before and he has no knowledge of, but he's watching and learning. He's like, oh, oh, all right, I see. That's what I was doing wrong. But Washington performs very well in this disaster at the Monongahela. When Braddock is mortally wounded and most of those officers are killed or wounded, Washington rallies the troops and leads the retreat. And yeah, not a great success, but his bravery is noted. Everybody knows about Washington's bravery at the Monongahela. And 20 years later, when the revolution begins, that's one of the things that gets brought up, that Washington was super brave when he was 23 years old at this Battle of the Monongahela. Washington learned a lot from Braddock. Braddock messed up. He got his troops slaughtered. But Washington watched how Braddock behaved in battle, how he was cool, how he kept his head, how he was personally courageous, and Washington takes that example. Maybe not the greatest example he could have taken, but it's the only example he had, right? It's the only general he's ever met. So yeah, he learns from Braddock, both Braddock and his defeat. He takes lessons from both of those and applies them. So after this, after this big battle, and after the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War really kicks into high gear, the British government gives the colony of Virginia permission to raise a provincial regiment. A Virginia regiment, a real one, not just a militia unit this time. And Washington becomes the colonel, the commander, the guy in charge of this. And raising and leading the Virginia regiment is the first time we really start to see Washington's good qualities. He, he still does some twerpy stuff. He's constantly whining about, why don't I get enough money? Why, don't I, why isn't my pay higher? Why isn't my troops pay higher? Why isn't this? Why isn't that? But these don't accomplish much. Washington also learns that demanding stuff from state governments is not how you get things done. You have to work with them. You have to be pol- you have to be political. You have to be as an officer. People talk about, I mean, I've seen people complain about you know, officers get too political. You have to be political. You have to be diplomatic because you work with civilian authorities all the time. So Washington is learning. He's learning throughout all of this. He's learning how to recruit, train, and organize raw Americans. How to turn those slack-jawed yokels from Virginia backcountry into competent soldiers. From the British, he learns the importance of discipline. It's often said, the big problem with the British tactics was that they were fighting in these close formations. And that made them easy to shoot and get picked off. Those tight formations were the best way to fight in this time period. The British had lost the Battle of Monongahela because their troops lost discipline, not from too much discipline. Washington learns the importance of discipline, of that good training. But he has to change his methods. He has to culturally attune his methods. Because you can't treat Virginians like Europeans. You can't treat Americans like you do British soldiers. They respond differently. They react differently. They're more rebellious and more independent-minded. They don't like being told what to do. You have to address them and work with them in a way that fits what they believe authority is supposed to be. Again, we talk about culture. Culture affects way people fight their wars. American culture was already much different from British culture. How Americans responded to combat was much different than how British responded to combat. Developing this synthesis 
of European styles of warfare, which were always more effective on the battlefield, and American frontier fighting, which was closer to American geography. And Washington turns the Virginia Regiment into the best disciplined, best trained military unit the 13 colonies had ever fielded. He does not lead the Virginia Regiment in a major battle. This does not happen. And this is actually a weak point in Washington's military experience. He never really commands many major battles before the American Revolution. And oh boy, that is going to show. But he learns these hard, these very practical, pragmatic lessons. How to recruit, how to organize, how to administer, how to train, how to enforce discipline on Americans who are not used to it, and how to supply them. How to work with state and local authorities to get the supplies he needs. After a couple of months of the twerpy stuff, of the whiny stuff, he learns that that doesn't work. You have to be respectful. You have to be polite and you have to not be arrogant and make demands. You have to request. You have to work with. Because when you meet people halfway, generally they'll come halfway too. He also sees the British failing to learn these lessons. There was a British commander, a guy we've met, a guy we know from the 45, John Campbell, Earl of Loudoun, who was the leader of the Highland, the pro-British Highland troops during the 45. Well, John Campbell, Earl of Loudoun, comes to lead the British forces after Braddock is killed. Campbell has a bad habit of demanding things from the colonies, which puts their hackles up, makes them ornery. They're like, we're not going to do what you tell us. Later British officers like Jeffrey Amherst would request, would ask, hey guys, can you help us out? Hey, we're working together. Can you help us out? We'll pay for this stuff. Can you help us out? And it's it's like you opened a you opened a tap. Like it's flooding out after that point. Because you can't approach the Americans the way you approach Europeans. You gotta treat them differently. Washington does lead the Virginia Regiment on the expedition of General John Forbes. Again, six degrees of frickin' 45 here. John Forbes was Duncan Forbes' first cousin, Brigadier General John Forbes. John Forbes leads troops into Pennsylvania and captures the forks of the Ohio, building this military road. Forbes takes the French fort, Fort Duquesne, at the forks of the Ohio, and names it after the current British Prime Minister, William Pitt, which is how we they start calling it Fort Pitt, what is now Pittsburgh. But so now you know. Another trivia question. But again, Washington works with John Forbes. He works with regular units and militia units and provincials. He's learning a lot by observing these people, by observing the way things are done in a regular British Army unit. And Forbes teaches him a lot because Forbes is a decent, competent commander. After the capture of the Forks of the Ohio, Virginia's role in the Seven Years' War is basically over. And in January 1759, Washington resigns his commission. He's got other stuff to do, got another life to live. But he'd grown a lot in a few years, come a long way from the disasters of, you know, a few years ago. Much better at 26 than 22. He learned a lot of lessons. He learned the importance of training and discipline, how to work in, how to recruit and lead Americans, how to work with democratic governments and civil authorities. Notably, did not learn a lot of tactics, led no real battles. And again, that's going to come back to haunt him. But Washington steps down in January 1759 and leaves, retires from his military career for the first time. He was, thank God he was better at 26 and 22, right? I mean, some people never grow up. But Washington grew up a lot in a few years. I can't imagine many of us would be in the same place we are now, those of us who are older, if we didn't change from when we were in our 20s. 
So that's the young George Washington adventures. It's time to be a civilian again. Time to settle down. Maybe get married. All right. So part two. Washington between the wars. Sure, let's go. Let's go. Washington married Martha Custis, a wealthy widow, in 1759. And we'll get into how important this was in a little bit. Washington getting married. But Martha came with two children of her own from her previous marriage. Two stepkids who brought in their own property. So Washington, you know, when he got married, he had a complicated property arrangement to look at because he had his own property from his own family. But Martha had her own property and his stepkids had their own properties that they inherited from their dad when he died. So there's all these different things he can and can't do with each of these individual properties. And so it is difficult to manage. It's a complicated property arrangement. But also get this. Washington was a stepdad. Washington is 26 years, 27 years old. Now he's a stepdad. You ever have to wonder if he had to deal with kids, his kids saying, you know, you're not my real dad. You're just the guy that married my mom. You can't, although it probably was much less common in the 18th century than it is now, you still have to wonder if there wasn't a bit of that dynamic. Plus, in some ways, his kids were, stepkids were richer than he was in a couple areas. You're 11 years old. Hey, dad, get off my property. Just <laughs> imagine that. But what's weird is despite being called the father of his country, Washington had no biological children of his own. None at all. He and Martha did not have children, and they never would. That Washington has no biological descendants that we know of. I mean, it's not possible, but we don't know of any. But Washington as the plantation owner means we have to deal with, you knew it was coming. We gotta talk about slavery. George Washington was absolutely a large-scale slave owner. That's not even worth arguing about. And you may ask, well, maybe was he a bad slave owner? Mm, that's that's a question. There's uh, this idea that well, maybe they were slave owners, but they weren't bad slave owners. They weren't they weren't mean slave owners. Well, I think that's a false choice between the nice slave owner and the mean slave owner, the nice master and the bad master. The slave system, the American slave system, one of, if not the largest and most terrible violations of human rights this country's ever committed, being a slave owner of any kind, no matter how nice you were, perpetuated the system. There was no such thing as a righteous slave owner. We might say, well, we can't judge them by our standards. Oh, you know what I'm going to say. I'm judging them by their standards. There were plenty of people in the time period who viewed slavery as wrong. And people who told Washington this. Two, the two men that Washington regarded, uh, you know, reciproc reciprocally or not, as his surrogate sons, Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette, were both frustrated with Washington about his support of slavery. Lafayette, who adored Washington, who idolized Washington, had that, that slavery thing was a sticking point for him. He could not abide by it. He couldn't accept it. What Lafayette thought it was inhuman. You know, is this one big problem with his idol? In much the same way that it is still one of America's big problems with Washington today. The fact that he owned so many slaves and was part of this American slave society. That is still the biggest hangup many people have about George Washington. And it's a valid hangup. You can't really differentiate too much between nice and cruel masters. Yeah, maybe you weren't an absolute terror to your slaves. Sure, maybe not. By participating in the system, you kept the system rolling. That's all there is to it. That being said, Washington was at the very least not known for being cruel or harsh. He prided himself on being what he saw as firm but fair. It's clear that Washington, like 
almost everyone of his time saw black people as lesser. He was racist. Most of the people in the time were, but that doesn't change the fact that he was a racist. Washington had a very strong work ethic. He had like a very high standard of work ethic for himself, but he expected his slaves to share his work ethic. And he got frustrated when he's, when they behaved what he's, what he saw as lazy. This is a stereotype of the lazy black person, a racial stereotype that dates way back to the American Revolution when people get upset their slaves weren't working harder. I mean, yeah, but for what benefit? You're not going to pay them more. You're not paying them at all. But Washington expected his slaves, why aren't you working harder? I'm working out here. Why aren't you working? He never starved them. He made sure they were clothed. But you know, that is bare minimum. Like, that's that's not you don't get brownie points for doing the bare minimum to keep your human property alive, guy. Washington did chase down escaping slaves. He did organize slave hunts for when his slaves went missing. And that is something somehow I think that brings it home more. It's easy to see a bunch of idealized slaves, uh, this little dream-like world of the slaves who are just they're happy. They're not they're not especially happy, but they're happy to work for George, but when he they run away, he sent people to bring them back. That means that a lot of them weren't happy. A lot of them were not happy. A lot of them wanted to escape. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to be a slave. They want to escape. Washington wasn't such a wonderful master that his slaves were willing to stick around. In support him. When the British came in 1781, I think, and raided into Virginia, a bunch of Mount Vernon slaves ran off. They're like, this is our chance. Let's go. I don't care how cool this guy might be to the rest of America. We are getting out of here, man. And yeah, can you blame them? A lot of times we discuss the impact of slavery more on how it impacted the white folks. Like, I'm discussing... I'm not discussing the impact of slavery on George Washington. There's also George Washington's impact on the slaves. I mean, gosh, there was this one incident. Like Washington expected the slaves to share his work ethic. And there was this one slave, uh, one of his slaves or enslaved persons. I understand that sometimes the language can be enslaved person as better, but that's just such a clunky term. They were slaves. They did not want to be. They were human beings with hopes and dreams and thoughts of their own. He, there was this one slave who had like a crippled arm. He couldn't, he wasn't as physically capable as the others, but Washington was still trying to put him to work in the fields. And when this guy was like, I can't do it, Washington took his arm, took his own arm, Washington's arm, and like put it to his side. Like, look, I can do it. See? Took his other arm, picked up a hoe, and started just plowing, just hacking away at the dirt. Yeah, dude, that's not sustainable. This dude has a crippled arm. What are you trying to do? It's, you can't work in the fields. His arm doesn't work. Come on, George. You you know better than that. But yeah, that's you can't get around this. You can't get around this aspect of George Washington. This is part of who he was. He lived in this slave society. Now, Washington later came to oppose slavery, but only privately. And as the result of a gradual awakening instead of a sudden epiphany. And it came to be his biggest personal moral issue. The biggest thing that kept him up at night morally. Both to himself and to us today. When we talk about Washington, that's our biggest moral hangup, isn't it? He came around to opposing slavery in letters and personal conversation by the time he was president. The 1780s to 1790s. But Washington never took direct action against slavery. He freed slaves in his will, but that was, you know, he, did, he was going to be dead. He didn't have to worry about that. That wasn't necessarily an act of courage. Uh, 
it is safe to say, could Washington have done something more about slavery? Could he have done more about it? Could he have done something about it? Slavery was so interwoven into Virginia economy and society that it was basically impossible for the Washington family to sustain their lifestyle without it. Washington explicitly didn't free his own slaves during his lifetime. He said this because they married into the slave families of his wife and children, and he wasn't willing to break those families up. This was one of those thorny problems. Yeah, you free your slave, sure. But what if your slave is married to someone else's slave and they're not willing to free that person? Are they just going to let this free black person hang around the plantation? No. No, uh, white Virginians were always suspicious of free black people. This was They were never safe. By trying to break the system... Washington would probably have ruined his reputation and financial standing in society. By taking direct action against the system, he would have destroyed his family's well-being. I mean, you might say, yeah, it's not an excuse. And it is not an excuse. But it was definitely on his mind. We can still say he was immoral for not doing it. And I think he was. I think when you're faced with that kind of immorality, an immoral institution like that, It is immoral to continue to take part in it, even if it's your family's well-being at stake. But you got to wonder today, how many people would be comfortable degrading their family's standard of living based on a moral stand? That's the kind of courage that most people throughout history don't have. Most people don't have today. We continually refuse to stop buying things from that are manufactured in places like China or sweatshops because we're not willing to sacrifice our standard of living to take a moral stand. That's less direct. It's less in our face. We're not looking at the enslaved people right in front of us. But that moral courage is extremely rare. We can rightfully criticize Washington because I think he could have done more about slavery. I think he could have. I think he could have come out openly against it. He could have used his political influence, especially as president. That he did not do that is a massive moral failing. But it's a moral failing he shared with the rest of the founding fathers and basically the vast majority of his generation. We can still say he was immoral for not doing it, but so was everyone else. I'm not trying to justify it. I think Washington could have and should have done more about slavery. But I can also understand why he didn't. He was, in this area, he was a moral coward, as are most people. When it comes to things that are going to hurt us, It's going to we, we have to sacrifice something for our morals. Most people aren't willing to do that. Not, not to that extent. So Washington was a slave owner. And even though he spoke out a little bit against it in private, he did nothing about it in public and very little in practice. Washington did a bit more than some, but far less than he could have. And I got to emphasize, guys, got to emphasize, in, in case there's any doubt in your mind, slavery was a horrible system, an evil system. There, there was this, this degradation, this humiliation, this just this nastiness to it. This, and the more you read about it, the more uncomfortable you are with it. It's, it was barbaric. It was one of the worst parts of our country's history. And Washington did not really try to stop it. Not really. And we have to deal with that. Now we have to we have to live with that. You can't separate the good from the bad. You can't separate a person's good actions from their bad actions. They both exist. They don't wipe out each other out. They don't balance each other out. They're both present. But now that we've gotten that out of the way, Washington as a plantation owner, 
this experience, even the slave stuff, was also an important experience. His administration of of his plantations and all this property taught him management, finances, variety of other skills. During this time period, his 20s, his 30s, his early 40s, he was also a Virginia legislator. So he gained experience working in a democratic body. He was able to see things from the government side of the house after seeing it from the military side. And all all these experiences are important. All these experiences are important for making George Washington who he was as a general later on. Washington saw himself. He saw himself as like an English country gentleman. Like, you know, that's the image he had of himself in his head. Eh. He wanted to be. He wanted to... He had this idea of himself as such a proper gentleman, as an arist- almost like an aristocrat. And he often went behind, beyond his means. Besides being, normally Washington was very, very frugal, very, very practical when it came to managing his property and his plantation, managing his economic affairs. But he did splurge a little bit on like elegant dining ware and silver and chandeliers and stuff to make his house look, Mount Vernon look more like a, you know, a country estate. He wanted to emphasize that image. Washington was kind of a keeping up with the Joneses kind of guy. He was kind of like, oh, Jefferson has a chandelier. I'll get a chandelier. You know, he was trying to cultivate this image of himself. He wanted people to see him as well-to-do. Of course, he also had financial issues sometimes, but compared to most other plantation owners of the time, he kept his head above water financially. Plantation work in... Owning a plantation in early America was not always profitable. You often went deep in the hole trying to run it. But Washington was also, besides being a stepfather, plantation owner, and slaveholder, a husband. Marriage changes a person. You get you get this person who is the most important other person in your life for the rest of your life. Yes, you will have children, but it's eventually those children are going to move away and have lives of their own. But you're always going to have your spouse, hopefully. Martha changed Washington, changed George. She helped him grow up, honestly. she This originally was not a love match. She was a wealthy widow. Washington's like, yep, money time, and married her. But they eventually developed a very deep relationship. It was very companionable, much more of a partnership than we think of when we think of old-timey marriages, you know? So Washington's marriage became a big part of his character. Washington loved Martha. Martha loved him. They weren't super romantic about it. They were never going to show love affection in public, but she was his confidant, the only person he could basically unwind around, confess his real feelings to. And she was extremely supportive to him. Martha Washington was the most important person in George Washington's life. I think that history, especially military history, can tend to de-emphasize the importance of these personal home relationships. But they are one of the most important influences on a person's character and personality. Absolutely. The spouse changes a person. Hopefully for the better, almost always. Maybe not, but usually. Benedict Arnold's wife convinced him to betray the American cause, so sometimes it doesn't work out, but most of the time it does. I'm, I'm losing, I'm running out of time. All right, so, moving right along. So in 1775, revolution happens. We don't need that story. We know Boston Tea Party. All that stuff. Moving on. But the revolution comes, and Washington is one of the early voices advocating for revolution, for um, against the policies of the parliament and Lord North and all that. He's speaking out in the Virginia's legislature. But so Washington is sent to the Second Continental Congress as one of the Virginia representatives. 
after Lexington and Concord. This is when the first shot's been fired, shot her around the world. War is happening. War is on their doorstep. Washington shows up the Second Continental Congress. And Continental Congress is trying to choose, well, we got to appoint someone to lead the Continental Army. Who's it going to be? Washington's like, I don't know. Who should it be? Washington showed up in uniform. He showed up in his militia uniform. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe there's someone uh, you can think of. Uh, hopefully he'll be good at his job. You're in uniform. You're in a military uniform. You show up to the Continental Congress. You know they're going to be picking a commander for the Continental Army. And you're like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I just, I'm just showing up here to, you know. Yeah, Washington, you want the job. Do you want the job? We know you want the job. But he couldn't say he wanted the job. Early America was terrified of standing armies. But Washington can't say he wants a job because if you act like you want the job too much, it's a little, that's a little concerning. If Washington came to Congress like, I want to command the army, everybody's going to look at him like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't let you command the army. You, you, you can't want it too much. But there are alternatives. There are alternatives to Washington as commander of the army. Uh, John Hancock was one of the big alternatives. John Hancock wanted to lead the Continental Army. John Hancock had zero military experience, but he was from New England and he was well-respected. But the other two guys were guys who would basically be Washington's uh, friendly arch nemeses for the rest of the war. And those were Horatio Gates and Charles Lee, who were both British army officers, commissioned British army officers during the Seven Years' War. They had served in Europe. They had experience with a professional army. Washington never had that. Washington had one of the British commission, but he never got one. But Gates and Lee were both born in England. They were both experienced officers. They had the formal military training that Washington didn't have. So it might make sense to appoint them. But Washington got the job. And he became the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. So when Washington gets the job, big part of it, and this is honestly, yeah, this does matter, he looked like a general. So let's establish Washington. What did he look like? What was this man like in 1775? What was he like? Washington looked like a general. About six feet tall. The sometimes people like to add to that. Like, maybe he's a little bit taller than six feet. No. In 1773, Washington sends directions to his tailor in London, who is, barely knows this guy. He sends, he says that he's six feet tall in this message to his tailor. And there's one person you don't lie to. It's your tailor. Because this guy is going to make your clothes, and you can't have those looking weird. So Washington is six feet tall. About 175 at low end, 220 pounds at the high end. A big dude. Just a big dude. He was Washington was a big boy. He was just lantern-jawed, big bones, big hands, big legs, big arms, big torso. Kind of a smallish head, <laughs> which is kind of funny. It's like it's just this enormous rest of him. Not that small, just kind of slight, his head was slightly too small for the rest of his body. Washington also kind of spoke in a weak, breathy voice. Not a great public speaker. George Washington was not a, um, was not a great public speaker. And that's, this is pretty much well backed up. He did not like giving speeches to large crowds, especially in political settings. He was a bit shy when this happened, which is kind of weird to think about. Washington not being a great public speaker with a weak, breathy Southern accent. That's his voice. This is George Washington. All right. Yeah, it's not going to be, uh, you're not going to have no George C. Scott. Like, Patton. George C. Scott is Patton in the 1970 movie. What's funny about George Patton, George Patton had a thin, high, reedy voice. 
Not the kind of voice you imagine when you think of George Patton. He sounded like an angry sub- suburban mom yelling at the supermarket cashier more than he did the big booming voice we want to think of with the general's voice. A lot of people in history are like that. You don't want to know what their voice sounded like because it's not what you imagine. Washington had like a weak, breathy voice. You know, he, d- he didn't have that big booming voice. That he could yell, but not what you think. Not what you sound- think he'd sound like. But Washington always saw himself as a soldier. Ever, Even after he'd left the Virginia service, after the Seven Years' War, he had studied military theory. Uh, he'd Especially Humphrey Bland's tactical books, uh, 1727 Drill Book. That was, Humphrey, that was what he, that was his, the tactical Bible. That was Humphrey Bland's drill regulations. If you remember, Humphrey Bland was who was helping command at the Battle of Culloden, the, the British Army's tactical wizard, and that was the guy. But Washington's character deserves a couple of lines because uh, Washington was extremely reserved, very formal, not a backslapper at all. You're not going to get a beer with George Washington. You, not at all. Washington is not a shoulder rubber. He's not, you know, he Washington would lose a modern election. Absolutely. Because he would never get on a, tr- stand up on a tractor and a checkered shirt and talk about farm policy. Washington would be in his formal suit he would not speak very well, and he doesn't really mingle very well with lots of folks. He's very polite, very proper, very restrained. Washington tried to make his character extremely disciplined. He was trying to give this image. He had this image of himself. Everybody has an image of themselves. They, they have this image they cultivate of what they want to be. Washington wanted to cultivate the image of this English country gentleman, very straight back. Very polite, very restrained, very disciplined and dignified. That was what Washington tried to present to the world. He would let that down. He would let that down around Martha. He would let that down around his young staff during the Revolution, especially uh, Hamilton and Lawrence. One of the reasons I think Hamilton got sour with Washington later in the war is because Hamilton saw the side of Washington that no one else saw. Hamilton's like, yeah, you, sh- you should hear what this guy says behind closed doors. You should, you should see what this guy... <laughs> like. Washington, you know, Washington goes in there all polite and closes the door and starts kicking tables. Crap! Those idiots! Those idiots! And Hamilton is the only one seeing this. Everybody else is, you know, they don't see Washington losing his temper, getting snippy, getting moody, because Washington locks down when he goes outside, and he's Washington. Polite, proper, restrained. It's because, of course, he had emotions. He had turbulent emotions, Always under the surface, but he had them. He got angry, happy, moody, disappointed, depressed, nervous, even whimsical sometimes. And so Washington believed strongly in this idea that familiarity breeds contempt. That by keeping this distance, he was able to maintain a a lot of authority. He was able to put on this air of authority. And it worked. And it worked. A lot. But I got a story. I got a story, and this comes from later. I'm skipping the narrative around. There's a great story about Washington's character. And this comes from uh, George Washington, The American Military Tradition by Don Higginbotham. I've read the story other places, but it's just, it's funny. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting at all. So, uh, this constitutional convention is going on in Philadelphia in 1787. And they're having social hour after the convention's proceedings over that day. And everybody's just hanging out. They're having a party or whatever. Not, not like a... You know, it's not like a kegger. You know, it's not a tailgate. It's just they're in the salon. They're whatever. They're having a party. They're having some wine. They're talking, chatting. And uh, Alexander Hamilton 
Alexander Hamilton is talking to Governor Morris. He's telling Governor Morris, you know, yeah, you should, Washington's always so restrained and disciplined. You know, he's he's just so polite. He's so formal all the time. And Governor Morris is like, he's not that bad. He's not like that. Like, y'all are exaggerating. And Hamilton basically says, oh, really? Oh, really? All right. I'll bet you dinner. I'll I'll pay for your dinner. If you go over to Washington right now, if you go over to Washington and (laughs) slap him on the back and say, my dear general, how happy I am to see you look so well. This is the Revolutionary War equivalent of like, of like nut checking Washington. Hey, George, how they hanging? That's basically the, this, that is, that is the level of informality that this implies in this time period. And, uh, and, um, Morris did not, uh, do quite this. He, Governor Morris goes up to Washington, bows, shakes his hand, and places his left hand like lightly on Washington's shoulder and says, My dear general, I am very happy to see you look so well. This is a level of informality, of like personal space and familiarity. Ooh, ooh, Washington just glares at him. Just this cold, icy stare. Just like laser, laser eyes. Slowly removes Governor Morris's hand. Just takes it off his shoulder. Just steps back and just gives him the stare. Just this, like, freaking those, those freaking sphinx things. And, um... You know, what is it? Never ending story where you know you're going to get laser beamed any second now. And he's just staring at him. And Governor Morris just turns around and runs away. He's like, oh, no. And Hamilton's like, wow, I didn't think you'd do it. I owe you dinner. (laughs) And Morris is like, sure. But I would not do that again for all the money in the world, essentially. That was Washington, though. Washington was very formal, very polite, very restrained and disciplined. He liked his personal space. He liked his distance. But he wasn't like a Puritan. He liked theater. He liked dancing. He was apparently an excellent dancer. He liked to hunt. Washington loved to hunt when he was at Mount Vernon. That was that was how he spent his free time. He was he would go out hunting, chasing foxes, being that English gentleman that he always wanted to pretend to be. He loved the theater. His favorite play was a dramatization of the Roman hero Cato. Cato in ancient Rome was a senator whose famous for his integrity and character and his morals and dignity, who stood up to Julius Caesar and eventually committed suicide rather than surrender to Caesar. And Washington loved this play. He would watch any performance of it he could get. His officers put on a performance of it for him at Valley Forge. Washington loved this play and sounds like he identified very strongly with Cato. Cato was his hero. Yeah, it's the thing that's weird. Washington had a hero. Of course he had a hero. Everyone has a hero. He also had other downsides to his personality. Washington was extremely stubborn. It was hard to get him to change his mind. It only took a lot of evidence and a lot of persuading. Stubbornness and determination are very close sides of the same coin. Washington was very determined, but that could also make him very stubborn. Washington was very vain, very prideful. We've seen this already as a young man. He was very vain. He was um, extremely vain about his appearance. It's why he was always so tight-lipped in all these portraits, because he's trying to hide those dentures. He hated those having to wear those dentures, uh, which might have been assembled at least partially from slaves' teeth, not forcibly confiscated. Like They weren't going around to random slaves and yanking out their teeth to put them in dentures. These were often sold. Slaves would often sell their teeth for dentures to... It's not that much better. It's still kind of gross and creepy, but okay. 
Uh, but he was vain about his appearance. Washington was vain about his appearance and his reputation. He did not take direct criticism well. He was extremely sensitive to attacks on his reputation, on his character, and he had a temper. A lot of times it would simmer just beneath the surface. So he's not perfect, is he? No, he's just a dude. He has... We have his character down. But Washington is a general. How did Washington do as general of the Continental Army throughout the Revolutionary War? Okay, you want the good news first or the bad news first? We're going to go bad news first. During the American Revolution, Washington's battle record was bad. That's gonna, we're going to get that out of the way right now. Washington lost most of the battles he fought. I brought up the New York campaign before during the American insurgency episode earlier this month. When the, you know, the British came blitzing in, shock and all, mission accomplished, remember? But I'll do it again. The British forces under the Howe brothers, especially William Howe, thrashed Washington. Thrashed him. They outflanked him, outmaneuvered him. His troops just ran away. He had no control over the situation. I mean, there's these multiple battles. Long Island, the attack on Manhattan Island, the Battle of White Plains, where the British are just taking Washington's army apart. It's not funny. It's embarrassing. Americans, American history is the Revolutionary War. Can never, ever write about this campaign without eventually ending with the battles of Trenton and Princeton in 1776-1777, which Washington wins. Because if you just ended it after the New York campaign, it would be too depressing. It is humiliating. Part of it wasn't his fault. His troops were undisciplined. He didn't have a lot of money or a lot of supplies. His officers were untrained, and they were fighting a very, very capable, very dangerous army. But big chunks of it were his fault. Basic tactical mistakes, bad judgment, bad timing, uh, listening too much to his generals who didn't know what they were talking about, not listening enough to his generals who didn't know what they were talking about. Mistakes. Washington does not perform well in the New York campaign, except for like a couple of times. The Continental Army almost died in 1776. The British almost kicked it apart. The next year, 1777, again, Battle of Brandywine, Howe outflanks him again, major defeat, uh, Germantown, he tries to attack General Howe, but Washington's plan is too complicated, plan falls apart, beaten again. Continental Army almost died after defeats in 1777. Washington's only major victories in his life, as a battle, in battle, are Trenton in 1776, Princeton in 1777, a pair of battles that happen right after Washington crosses the Delaware, that famous, that famous event, and Yorktown in 1781. And get this, Yorktown wasn't even his idea. That was General Rochambeau's idea, the French general who was working with Washington, and the, ad, the French Admiral Francois-Joseph Paul de Grasse. Now, Washington did execute. He made it happen. He made it work. But it wasn't his idea. And the Battle of Monmouth in 1778 was a draw. Washington kept it from being a disaster. could have been a lot worse, but he didn't win. The British Army escaped. In these battles, some of Washington's mistakes were downright stupid and embarrassing. Not saying he was stupid, but some of his mistakes were stupid. At Long Island, 1776, Brandywine, 1777, Washington leaves enormous gaps in his line, enormous areas unwatched where the British just march around his army and crush it. Uh... 
and he had to be talked out of other dumb ideas. There were times when Washington wanted to attack Boston or New York head-on in frontal attacks, which would have been a disaster. To his credit, he let other people talk him out of it. The big reasons for all these failures, the big reasons for all these failings. Well, I mean, we talked about one. Washington had no professional military experience. All his education and training was from the School of Hard Knocks, essentially. And all his opponents had this professional military experience. Uh, He was fighting the professional army that trained and prepared for combat, led by some very good generals. These people knew what the heck they were doing when it came to battle. They all had extensive battle experience. They'd all worked under generals and learned from them in battle. And Washington hadn't. When it came to battle alone, the other choices for command, Horatio Gates and Charles Lee, they might have been better picks because they had that professional military experience that Washington lacked. And of course, you can't deny that his opponents were extremely capable and dangerous. General Howe, General Clinton, General Cornwallis, these were good generals. These were tough opponents. Washington himself said that Howe, General William Howe, who often gets dragged a lot by history's American Revolution, Washington said Howe was his most dangerous opponent. Howe beat Washington in five separate battles. Washington never defeated Sir William Howe. Howe made it look easy, too. He made it look simple. Now, Washington had commanded a regiment. He had, remember? The Virginia Regiment. But he had never commanded it in serious battle. This did not prepare him for leading a large army in battle. Washington does not seem to be very creative with his tactics, even in the battles that he's winning. He's very direct, and he doesn't seem to have this sense of span of control. He never has this natural grasp of battle. And if it's not happening in front of him, it's sometimes hard for him to perceive what's going on outside of his span of vision. This is a problem a lot of commanders have, especially when they don't have that formal military training. He got better as time went on, but no one ever could ever accuse Washington of being a tactical or military genius. He never displayed that natural grasp of battle someone like Alexander the Great or Napoleon or heck, even Lord George Murray had. Like I said, again, not stupid, Uh, definitely above average to very high intelligence, just not, not, not a genius, not a genius. Most of us aren't. That's okay. So we got this image of Washington thumping the British all the time. I mean, that's the American pop cultural image, Washington beating up the British, but really he was usually getting thumped. Uh, The biggest victories of the war, Saratoga and Yorktown, he A, wasn't present for, and B, he planned and executed, but the original strategy belonged to Rochambeau and de Grasse. And this was something that Washington hated admitting and always denied. One of those petty moments, one of those very vain moments of his, Washington always claimed that he had had the idea for Yorktown. He didn't. Rochambeau did. Uh, Even though it was false, he always claimed this at the end of his days. Washington wanted the victory to be his victory. Washington hated admitting that the French had any role to play in that strategy. He wanted the strategy to be his, but it wasn't. All of this, there was a possibility multiple times that Washington could have been fired, especially after 1776. Sometimes there were even plots to remove him. There was the Conway Cabal of 1778 when the army was at Valley Forge. This was a plan to replace Washington with Gates, you know, the victor of Saratoga. Gates had won Saratoga, or had at least commanded there, and he at least could claim that he'd won a battle when Washington, a major battle when Washington couldn't really claim that. He won Trenton and Princeton, but those had been small scale. So 
Why do we look at Washington as a good general? Would you still say Washington's a good general, James? He lost most of his battles. He did all these things wrong. He couldn't handle an army in battle. Yes. This is why. Washington's upsides. The main reason Washington was chosen, besides the fact that he was from Virginia and this counterbalance, like most of the people at the Continental Congress were Northerners. Most of the officers were Northerners. They needed a Southerner command to get like the whole country on, on their side. And his previous military experience as commander of the Virginia Regiment, the main reason he was chosen was his character. People trusted Washington with power, and he did not abuse that trust. This is powerful stuff. I can't emphasize this enough. This is the theme I'm going to harp on through the rest of this, the rest of this entire episode. Washington's famous discipline, reserve, and integrity and moral code made him the only person that Congress could trust with military authority because Americans were terrified of the abuse of military authority. Heck, that was why they were fighting this war because the Redcoats coming in and abusing military authority. There was a fear, a very well-known fear of military dictators in a republic. This is partially from Caesar and the Roman Republic and how he overthrew that. But really, 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 Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, the English general in the English Civil War, who overthrew Parliament and instituted a military dictatorship. This is a this made British and American political liberals or political radicals really terrified of standing armies in their power. Standing armies were seen as an instrument of tyranny. Hard to argue with that when you have the redcoats on top of you. Only someone that his fellow founding fathers absolutely trusted with power could be given military power. Not Hancock, who was lobbying for the job. That's why lobbying for the job was a bad idea. And Gates and Lee were a little too eager to get power, and that was go to Washington. But he was just respected. The man people saw was a natural leader. Kind of guy to unite the colonies, bring them all together. Because of that standoffishness, that reserve, that distance he kept from so many people, he seemed like he wouldn't be too political, too personal, too factional. He was famous even before the revolution for his proper conduct, for his bearing, temperament, self-restraint, his belief in duty, for his courage. Remember how he showed courage at the Battle of the Monongahela under Braddock? People remember that 20 years later and they're like, yeah, that guy's brave. That's one of the big reasons he was chosen over more experienced officers. And given how Gates and Lee later behaved when they were given authority, that is pretty borne out. I forget where I read it, but someone pointed out that the only person that even every British newspaper, whether pro or anti-government, treated with respect and almost reverence was George Washington. Even the ones who were pro-war treated George Washington with respect. The British newspapers. But we've seen Washington bolo all these battles, just ruin all these battles, just mess up over and over. So what was he good at? Washington was good at running the army. See, it's easy to look at battles and think that they are everything in a war. But armies are funny institutions, aren't they? Militaries are funny institutions. They spend most of their existence soaking up huge amounts of money and time and energy, not doing the thing they're made to do. Armies spend the vast, 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 vast majority of their time not fighting, not doing the thing they're designed for. It's one of the only professions where that happens. Lawyers are constantly practicing law. Doctors are constantly practicing medicine. Professors are constantly teaching and writing. Armies, officers, are almost never fighting. Almost never. 
They're preparing to do it. Battle, maneuver, tactics, actual shooty-shooty stuff is like 10% of a commander's job, even practicing it. The other 90% is administration, supply, organization, discipline, training, communications. And in the 1700s, you know what this meant? Metric crap tons of paperwork. So much paperwork, so many details, so many things to worry about. Supplies. Do your troops have shoes? Probably not if they're the Continental Army. Do they know how to use their guns? Probably not. And Washington, George Washington, was a work machine when it came to admin, supply, communications, transportation, organization, all this stuff. He was a workaholic. He never stopped. He would work late. He would work early. He was always up and riding around to supervise and inspect things. He was just always at work. All that time, both raising the Virginia Regiment and managing a plantation, did not make him a god of war. Didn't make him a Robert E. Lee or a Napoleon or a Patton or any of these people who have great battle performances or whatever. But it made him an outstanding manager. And that was what the Continental Army really needed. Because if you notice, they won the war. And the management was ended up being more important than the battles. Washington did not take leave for eight and a half years. He only returned to Mount Vernon once on his way to Yorktown for a couple of days. Never took leave. And that has to be some kind of record. Washington refused to accept pay. and not, not, No salary. He got compensated for his expenses, but he didn't take a salary. The man worked for eight and a half years straight. He didn't go hang out in a city when the Continental Army was in Valley Forge or Morristown. He was at Valley Forge and at Morristown. He was there with the army. He was running it. Why was this management side of things so important? Like I said, it's 90% of a commander's job. Keeping the Continental Army alive between the battles, not the battles themselves, was by far the most difficult part of Washington's job. By far. Food, clothing, ammunition, tents, blankets, weapons, all of them were extremely difficult to get. Congress was broke. Congress was always broke. The states didn't want to help, but they only wanted to help their own units. So Washington was always short of everything. He was constantly writing every single night, all to all the time, all day, every day, to anyone, state officials, Congress, uh, financiers, uh, so local providers to try to get the stuff his army needed. You know, he was the driving force behind this. Something huge. Smallpox inoculation. You know how many people diseases killed in this time period? Smallpox, typhus, uh, tuberculosis, malaria. Smallpox. Smallpox ruined armies. Washington lived in a time period when smallpox inoculation was very new. And this was not fun. You had to, like, cut open, just make a huge cut and just shove some cowpox in there. It would make you really sick for a while. But then the smallpox wouldn't kill you. And... Washington was making his Continental Army do this, even when a lot of people were suspicious of it. You boys are getting vaccinated. I don't care. This is smallpox. It's going to kill you. And again, Washington was a workaholic. His correspondence is massive. It was just, you go through his papers. They're massive. They're huge. All these things he was writing to all these people all the time to get his army the supplies and all the stuff he needed. It literally hurt his hand to write this much which is why he hired folks like Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence. 
they they wrote better than him. They were more florid. They you know they were more elegant in their writing than him. But also he just needed other people to be writing besides him. <laughs> he couldn't write it all on his own. Hamilton was basically speaking with Washington's voice for several years as his personal secretary. Defeat in battle was not what brought the American cause closest to disaster. Desertion, exposure, disease, starvation, those were. Those were going to kill the Continental Army way before the British did. They were the number one threat. Sustaining the army was the hardest job, and Washington was especially good at it. He was well equipped to handle it. Washington managed the Continental Army and kept it alive through some of the biggest political, financial, military problems any army has ever experienced. He did it for eight and a half years without taking a single day of leave. And more of that, Washington made it, made it an American army. He made it not just an army of 13 colonies. He was constantly emphasizing the importance of the revolutionary cause, what he called the glorious cause, telling them, you are not 13 colonies, you are a nation. You're a nation now. He turned the Continental Army into the symbol of unity for the, for the nation, that you aren't just 13 states who are going to go do your own thing willy-nilly. We are unified. We are working together. You are all part of this Continental Army, and you represent the new nation. And in the toughest days of the Revolution, 1776 and 1780 especially, the Continental Army was the only real national symbol compared to all the bickering state delegations in Congress or the I got mine sort of beliefs of the state governments. And Washington, as leader of the Continental Army, was the leader of American independence movement. Everybody saw this as the case. Even though Washington wasn't a civilian leader, he was a military leader, he was seen as the leader. And in one sense, the army was the revolutionary cause because they were the only ones that represented all the colonies together. That's why it was so important to keep the army together, why it was also so important that its leader have these certain qualities and restraints that kept him from going off the rails and becoming a dictator or a tyrant. And one of the biggest boons to this, one of the biggest things that kept Washington grounded, kept him from becoming this crazy person that people were afraid of in the revolution, was Martha. Martha Washington visited George every single year during winter camps, and she hated it. She wanted to be back home. She wanted to be at Mount Vernon. She hated going to these winter camps, especially Valley Forge and Morristown. People talk about Valley Forge all the time as like the worst camp, the, the cold camp where all this kind of army was freezing. But Martha kept Washington human. He could confide in her. She was the critical component. She kept him from being... Napoleon. Napoleon and Washington were in a similar place. They were both commanding their main armies of their countries during a revolutionary period. But Napoleon, as we know, overthrew his republic and made himself a, a ruler, a dictator. Washington did not. But Washington hated being absent from Martha. He hated when she wasn't around. He needed her. He really needed her, and he felt her absence when she was gone. They didn't have a crazy romantic passion or anything. You're, never, you're not going to write, there's not going to be a Nicholas Sparks novel about George and Martha Washington. Because because eventually someone would get cancer and then there'd be like a love note hidden in a vase or something. That's, but point being, oh, can you imagine a Hallmark movie about this? This would be this this would be atrocious. Uh, but moving on. Uh, <laughs> but this it wasn't a crazy romantic passion, but a powerful partnership and a respectful marriage. Again, compared with Napoleon, who was 
a man whore. Famously torrid love affairs. Him and Josephine are like the most toxic couple you've ever met. The fact that that Napoleon never had a real female partner. He never looked at women as really his equal or his partner. Josephine wasn't his partner. George and Martha were partners. They had this powerful, respectful partnership. She and his family gave him an identity and sense of belonging and acceptance. Home, this home, this warm place outside of the military political sphere, which probably kept George from falling apart. A good, solid spouse is an anchor. They're the, they're the only thing that keeps you from falling into darkness sometimes. It's really the case. Martha Washington was a big part of George Washington's life. She was the most important person in his life, and I don't think he would have been the man he was without her. I think when we do biographies, when we examine a person from history, putting the marriage front and center especially if they're married, and it's a lot of them weren't, but if they're married, putting the marriage front and center is something that needs to be done more because that is that tells you more about a person than a lot of other things, I think. But again, I'm digressing. Off we go. Uh, training and discipline. Washington brought the Continental Army into some sort of training and discipline. Discipline, he believed that discipline was the soul of an army. He had picked this up from the British Army. Washington wanted to build a professional army along British lines. He always looked to the British Army as his model a professional force. Washington did not want to have a militia rabble. He was constantly frustrated with the militia and how they would just run away all the time, how they couldn't be disciplined or organized, how they would just drift in and out of the fight. A lot of uh, more radicalized or more naive Americans, Jefferson, seemed to think the militia was all America would ever need. The militia would always be the only thing force America would ever need. America didn't need a standing military. Jefferson believed this because he didn't serve in the revolution. He was mostly off doing diplomatic stuff or doing the ideological civilian stuff. Anybody who served in the Revolutionary Army, Washington, Hamilton, Knox, Green, Lafayette, was all about the need for a standing army because the militia just ran away. But Washington wanted to give his Continental Army... They had the hardware. We talked about this before, right? Hardware and software in a military. Hardware, the materials. The software is the mindset, the mentality, the training, the doctrine. Washington and his troops barely had the hardware, but they had it. We need the software. We need the institutions, the organization, the discipline, the training, the mindset. His experience. Remember, when he was such a little idiot when he was in his 20s. His experience as a clueless militia idiot helped him train other clueless militia idiots because he could look at these smarmy young officers who think they know everything. He's like, I've been in your shoes before. And what made it worse, what made this always an uphill battle was that he had to retrain the army basically every year, especially early on. All the enlistments were only year long or several months long. And he'd train up his army and they'd be sort of good. He'd be like, okay, we're getting somewhere. And then they'd all go home because their enlistments expired. It was a mess. Washington finally persuaded Congress to let troops enlist for several years because up till then it's always been one year enlistments. Everybody's like, oh, the war is going to be over in a couple years once we beat the British. And that did not happen. So Washington had to, you know, keep retraining the army. Like he'd get them sort of decent and then they'd all leave and he'd have to start all over again from scratch. But Washington did eventually build a continental army that could stand up to the Redcoats in open battle. And they proved this at Monmouth in 1778, even though the British... Neither side really won that one. It was a draw. There were both sides had bad moments, but the British noticed 
very clearly, this was not the same Continental Army that it had been a year ago. They were trained. They were much better at fighting. And Washington was very brave in combat. He set a personal example, mainly in uh, Princeton and Monmouth a couple of times. He, and he, this personal example was extremely important. He kept his men fighting, oftentimes through motivation. Right after Trenton, where Washington crosses Delaware, defeats the little Hessian garrison, right after that, the year was about to end, and a bunch of guys were about to go home because their enlistments were up. Let's go. I don't care. <laughs> my job's done. My, my contract's up. I done my nickel. And Washington goes to each regiment in his army and makes a personal appeal I need you guys to stick around. Give me a week. Just a week. We can do good. Think of, the, think of the cause. Think of your country. I need you. I need you. Stick around. And after that, you can go. But I just need you for a little bit more. And he gets like half the army to stick around. I think more than half. I think most of them did. And he wins another battle at Princeton. And after that, yeah, a lot of the army goes home. But at the same time, he was able to keep those guys... Imagine trying to get people to do unpaid work, especially lethal unpaid work. <laughs> but Washington also picked his subordinates very well. And he was able to forgive his subordinates' mistakes when he saw the good in them. Nathaniel Green would be one of the greatest American generals of the war. I would say one of America's top ten in its all its history, period. But Nathaniel Green screwed up in 1776. There's this fort. A lot of people are like, this fort's kind of vulnerable. It's probably going to fall. And the Green's like, no, 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 I inspected it. The fort's good. And the fort is taken like several days later by the British and 3,000 prisoners are lost. And that's an enormous mistake. Green told Washington, gave his word. Yeah, on my honor, that's that fort's going to hold. It did not hold. But Washington kept Green around because he knew he'd be useful. And Green was magnificent later in the war. Henry Knox, kind of a younger dude, but in his 20s, big old boy. Uh, Henry Knox, who was just no, no military experience at all, ends up as Washington's artillery chief. And he's good. He's good at his job. He ends up becoming Washington's first uh, secretary of war. He he picked Hamilton. He dragged Hamilton out of obscurity, made him his personal secretary because he needed someone to help. Basically, Hamilton was basically his chief of staff, his adjutant. The guy who was... Uh, okay, the musical. All right, the musical. He was Washington's right-hand man. Not his not his second-in-command, but Washington's chief of staff, his secretary, the guy who was keeping his books. Now, Hamilton, most people have seen the musical. The musical's good. I like the musical. It does sugarcoat Hamilton a bit, and this is a musical that showcases a lot of Hamilton's flaws. Uh, Hamilton was brilliant, ambitious, not always super wise, he tried to blow up his relationship with Washington in 1780, kind of, for not really a good reason. Washington was too polite and liked his young protege too much to let him ruin their relationship. But Hamilton was like, just being a little jerk. And Washington was like, oh, all right, do your own thing, kid. You'll be back. And he was back. <laughs> One of the things the musical glosses over with Hamilton, a lot of Hamilton's political ideas were weird. Weird, not good ideas. This is part of the musical. I think it's near the end of Act 1. I, I can already hear it in my head. But this is part where Hamilton goes to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, like I mentioned, he was already there. And he proposes his own form of government. What was that form of government, you ask? Hamilton wanted to have a president for life and a Senate for life. The president would not coincidentally be Washington. The Senate would probably not coincidentally include himself. <laughs> People weren't afraid of Washington seeking power. 
Hamilton wanted power a little too much. Hamilton was the kind of guy who would have been a Napoleon. Like, you look at some of the stuff Hamilton wrote and said about government, and you're like, maybe this guy shouldn't have been, maybe this guy should never have been president. That would have been dangerous. That would have been bad. Hamilton had a bit of an authoritarian streak. Later on, later on, during, uh, during the Adams presidency, Hamilton was the commanding general of the army. He was the highest ranking officer in the United States Army. Musical doesn't even mention that. During the quasi-war with France, when there was a possibility of fighting Spain, Hamilton proposed to send to lead the entire army on a conquest expedition that would take over all of Latin and South America and annex it to the United States. And the reaction was basically, what? No. But yeah, Hamilton wanted to do that. That's weird, right? Wow, didn't, didn't see that in the musical. Hamilton wanted to be a military dictator, kind of. He had some weird authoritarian tendencies, guys. Let's thank your lucky stars. Thank your lucky stars. I know you like the guy and all. He had a nice musical. Lin-Manuel Miranda makes him very empathetic and all. Thank your lucky stars. Ha- Alexander Hamilton was never president. I'm just going to say. And then there was Lafayette. 1777. Basically, this French, this French child shows up. <laughs> This large French child shows up in Washington's camp like, I'm the Marquis de Lafayette. I'm like 18 years old. I've heard all about you and I love you. I have just met you and I love you. Like Lafayette met Washington and was immediately like, oh my gosh, you're Captain America. You're my hero. Washington took him under his wing, gave him responsibility and Lafayette did very well, uh, very capable. Lafayette was the closest Washington ever had to a surrogate son. Really, I'm, I'm dead serious. Lafayette and Washington had almost a father-son relationship. Washington wanted to have this relationship with Hamilton, but Hamilton said no. <laughs> and Washington was like, all right, geez. <laughs> but uh, Lafayette was Washington's basically surrogate son. Like this large French child who just suddenly shows up. He's like, daddy. And Washington's like, what do you get off of me? Stop. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, they had a very deep and affectionate friendship. Lafayette saw Washington as his mentor and like, you know, it was, a, it was a good relationship, very solid. But Lafayette was also very talented and good relationship. Good pick, Washington. And finally, there's Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. Also in 1777, this weird German dude shows up in the American camp. He barely speaks a lick of English, but he's here to help train the Continental Army. Washington's like, I like the cut of your jib. And he's like, okay, take over the Continental Army. And he does. And he's the one who trains them and teaches them drill. Not without some hiccups, because he barely spoke any English. He'd be yelling orders in German, and when the Americans didn't do them right, he'd start cursing in German, just waving his sword around, yelling at him. Von Steuben was uh, not a baron. Everybody knows him as Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. He was not a baron. He made that up. He had this whole cover story for the fact that he'd been a captain in the Prussian army, and Frederick the Great didn't like him and kicked him out. Also probably gay, uh, homosexual. In a time when, again, that was not allowed. But, wow, surprisingly, being gay is illegal in most countries. But surprisingly, there's a lot of gay people running around in the Enlightenment era. Wow, gee, it's almost like they've always been around. Who knew? So, von Steuben was almost certainly homosexual. And nobody cared. Everybody was like, eh, he doesn't like the girls very much. But, yeah, you know what? Crazy German guy teaching us how to fight the British. Whatever. Let's go. But Washington takes von Steuben, basically sees through his story, and he's like, hmm, you know what? I don't have anything to lose. Train the boys. Let's see how they do. And von Steuben was, he trained the Continental Army to make them able to stand up to the British. Washington shows his people well. 
He he saw the good in people. He saw beneath their flaws and their and their initial problems. He saw beneath Hamilton's craziness and ambition. He saw past Green's mistake. He saw past Lafayette's childish, you know, naivete. He saw past Von Steuben's obviously fake cover story. And he made an effective team. Ooh, I am running out of time. Uh, I wanted to keep this under two hours, but that may or may not happen. Let's see. But Washington was also a strategist. He knew what it took to win the war. And that meant winning the hearts and minds of the American people. He was keeping his troops from pillaging, from like stealing food from the Americans, from the locals, even when his troops were hungry. He would... He famously disciplined his soldiers from like stealing chickens and eggs and stuff from local farmers. Because like, I understand that you're hungry. I understand that you're starving. We all are. But you can't go making these people mad. We depend on these people and we're fighting for them. He just kept hope alive sometimes when it was, that was the important part was keeping the hope alive at certain points. Like Trenton and Princeton, when the army had been defeated badly at New York, badly. There's almost a remnant left, and they're demoralized, they're starving, they're out of supplies. Washington's like, we need to attack. We have to launch a small attack. We have to win a small victory because we have to keep morale alive. Or the if we don't win something before the end of this year, the revolution is dead. And Washington, this is paramount. Washington knows that American morale and popular support are the most important thing. There was this moral element to the conflict. They had to believe they could win. I mean, the British had all their own problems. We've talked about how many problems the British had. But with if the Americans gave up, the British won. Those, you know, the, that was a possibility. Morale was low. Spirits were low. Those two tiny battles, Trenton and Princeton, had a morale boost far beyond their actual impact, and Washington understood that. Washington was extremely pragmatic and practical. He wasn't super creative. He wasn't a, like, genius strategist, but he understood the war better than his British opponents did. He knew what it took to win. He had no illusions. Sustaining the army and keeping the army alive was enough. There was no need to risk a battle. As long as he was out there, as long as the army survived, the British were losing the war. The army didn't need to win the war. It needed to survive. It didn't need to win a battle. It needed to survive. He avoided conflict until he, unless he was certain of victory, especially after 1777 and Valley Forge. This hurt the British in all their weak points, all the things that were causing them to lose the war. It made the war longer. It showed them that despite American defeats, that they weren't going to be knocked out, that military defeat wasn't enough to win the war. And when the British didn't know, couldn't win the war that way, they didn't know what to do next, really. The sheer resilience and unwillingness to quit was what Washington gave to the Continental Army. That the keeping them in the field, keeping them alive, keeping them able to fight was what doomed the British war effort. If, even if they weren't winning battles, the Washington was winning the war. And that was the important part. But winning the war wasn't enough. There was also winning the peace. Washington and civil-military relations, Washington's relationship as a military officer to the civilian government. Because of that fear of military dictatorship, Washington worked overtime to ensure that his relationships with Congress and the states were correct and proper and respectful. That military authority, his authority, always bowed to civil authority. And this is his biggest contribution to the future of the United States and the military. 
he establishes this principle of military-civil relations, that the military is always subordinate to civil authorities. The army serves the people, not the other way around. Congress represented the people, the army serves them. All this experience, again, all the experiences during the Seven Years' War, the young George Washington Adventures comes roaring back. He had experience working with the states to get supply during the Seven Years' War. And later, as a state legislator, he saw it from the other angle. So it had a, gave him a political sense of how the military and civilian authorities should work together. As a military commander, you can't dominate the, mil- the civilians or order the civilians around. He always kept the army on good footing with the civilians. Always respectful and proper and shut anyone down who thought of going against civil authority. And lots of people wanted to do this, cough, cough, Hamilton, who wanted to defy Congress. Like, no, you don't don't let Congress give you the wrong. Washington's like, no, we have to respect Congress. We have to obey Congress, no matter what. Because this was important for winning more than the war. It was important for winning the peace. A brand new nation with a powerful, victorious army and a charismatic, beloved leader is an inherently dangerous position that the army will take over. And this happened a lot. Even in this time period, it happened in most Latin American countries when they got their independence. The army in Latin American countries has always had an outsized place in politics, way beyond what it has in America. It happened in revolutionary France with Napoleon, like I mentioned. A strong army behind a strong leader is an inherent danger to the future and liberties of a newborn republic. And this was not, this is the revolutionaries were paranoid about this, and they had reason to be. They were right to be paranoid. And that's the thing. Washington could have taken power if he'd wanted to. If Washington had wanted to be a dictator, I don't think anyone could have stopped him. After uh, the defeat in New York, Congress basically gave Washington dictatorial power for six months in 1776, 1777. He had dictatorial power. He did not ask for it. Congress did this on their own. He barely used it, and he let it expire. Because he felt that it wasn't his place to use it. It wasn't right. He never asked for extraordinary authority. He never asked for more power. Even when his army was freezing, starving, on the verge of ruin. And lots of people would have. I mean, looking at his look at he's looking at his miserable soldiers. They're starving, they're cold, they're they barely have houses. And all of these state authorities and local civilians are hoarding food and supplies and denying them to his men or that's what people believed, at least. A lot of the officers of the army believed that. How many commanders in his place would have succumbed to temptation? Just told, hey, Hamilton, take 100 men, go to the local, go to Philadelphia and tell them to give us some food. Or go down to, you know, go down to New Brunswick and grab me some, grab us some blankets. I don't care where you have to take them from, just do it. How many people would have done that? Use the army to just take what they needed. That's how most armies behaved in this time period. That's how most armies were. That's how the British behaved. And Congress was not popular (laughs) then or now. (laughs) Congress was seen as weak, ineffective, toxic, and corrupt. Some things don't change. Many military men, a lot of the men in the Continental Army, hated Congress. Ineffectual, weak governments that couldn't raise any money or send any supplies to the soldiers. And Washington himself did get frustrated with this a lot. He vented a lot to Hamilton, to Martha, to all these people about how the, the civilian authorities didn't support him like he felt like they should. He, his letters could get extremely tense and heated. Like, we are starving. We don't have any food. We don't have any supplies. We don't have any cash. We need stuff. I need you to send us stuff. 
and we go to Congress to be long debates and all this mess. And you can, you can, you would be frustrated too, wouldn't you? Because how many people would have just snapped and seized power or even, or even pushed the envelope? Most people, most people, almost all of us have power fantasies. The entire superhero industry is a power fantasy of fixing the world the way we want it, of making the wrong thing right, or of changing things to meet our whims, of, def- of breaking the boundaries, defying these limits everybody places on us to do the right thing. That's why we love vigilantes, isn't it? Screw the rules. I'm doing what's right. And in the revolution, Washington could have basically done that. He could have done anything he wanted with that army at his back. He could have overthrown Congress. He could have intimidated the states. He could have had his army take what they needed and live off the land. He could have been King George I of America if he wanted to. He might have won the war, but he would have killed the revolution. The biggest moment is the Newburgh Conspiracy in March 1783. This moment to me that makes Washington... Not the battles, not crossing the Delaware, not his inaugural addresses, not his farewell address, not becoming president, not the Constitution, none of this. This, to me, the Newburgh Conspiracy, is a moment that makes Washington. So it's March 1783, right? And peace is on the horizon. Peace is coming. And Washington's army is sitting up in upstate New York. And the very weak federal government has been unable to pay the soldiers. This has been a constant problem for the whole war. And Congress promised back in 1782 that they would pay all the soldiers when they could, but that right now they were completely out of cash. <laughs> and they were. But lots of the army officers were convinced that Congress is going to throw this promise down at the trash as soon as the war's over and as soon as they've disbanded. Because once they disbanded, they can't do anything about it, can they? So Knox, Henry Knox, Washington's friend, very close friend of Washington, leads a lot of the officers and they send a memorandum to Congress. And this goes to Hamilton, who is a member of Congress at this point, with a vague threat. Don't don't try our patience. We want our pay. Don't try our patience. Like rattling the saber, you know, threatening Congress so the army doesn't get paid. And it's supported by a certain faction in Congress, Hamilton, as a way of like forcing a stronger central government. You know, what will eventually happen at the Constitutional Convention. Basically, you know, you better cough up. You better cough up, Congress. Well, we're going to come up there and we'll talk again. And when talks go nowhere, many people start to talk about a a mutiny or even a coup, a coup d'etat. Men like Horatio Gates, especially Horatio Gates, is one of the ringleaders of this. Washington's long-term rival for command of the army. And he's leading this faction that's talking about maybe resorting to direct action to get their pay from Congress. And Washington is furious at all of this. You know, you're, you guys are, what happened to your oaths? What happened to your honor? What happened to your morals? Screw our morals. We want to be paid. Hamilton writes Washington and says, uh, once wa- Hamilton wants Washington to put himself in charge of this movement and basically steer it in the right direction. He says, like, take direction of the army's anger. And you can see sometimes Hamilton's great. Sometimes he's brilliant. But occasionally, Hamilton is the devil on Washington's shoulder telling him to take more power and authority, even when it's dangerous. Like, you know, you could definitely take charge of this whole thing and accomplish a lot. You know, the devil on his shoulder. And Maybe Martha's the angel on his shoulder. Hamilton's the devil on his shoulder. You kind of need both sometimes. What are you going to do? But Washington refuses. A military coup is contrary to every principle of the revolution. It's the glorious cause, the the democracy we've been fighting for. 
well, I can't overthrow the people's representatives. The Republic might not survive this thing if it gets out of hand. But in March, these letters start going around the camp. Like, these letters, like, we're going to have a meeting, so we're going to decide what to do next. And Washington puts the kibosh on that. No, you're not going to have a meeting. I'm going to have a meeting, and you're all going to attend. So on March 15th, 1783, the Continental Army's officers meet up in this little wooden building called the Temple. And Gates is there first. Gates opens up the meeting, the alleged ringleader of this Newburgh conspiracy, the new, you know, the Newburgh plot. And he's about to start talking when, to everyone's surprise, Washington shows up immediately, fashionably late. Because he wasn't there at first, but he shows up a little bit late. And says, I want to speak to the officers of my army. And Gates steps back and Washington steps forward. And he looks out. He looks out at these guys. And... These are the people he knows. He's led them for eight and a half years. They followed him through New York in Brandywine and Valley Forge to Yorktown and Trenton. They've been hit together for almost a decade. And he doesn't see them looking at him the same way anymore. They're usually respectful. They're usually deferential. They're all this, you know, they have that they have that respect. But now they're stony, they're cold, they're angry. They don't have that respect anymore. They're looking at him like he's the man. He's the guy trying to keep them down. He's the guy standing in their way. After years of being rebels together, now they're rebelling against him and his principles. And the principles, in his mind, are the revolution. Washington has to talk these guys out of overthrowing the republic. (laughs) This war we're at in 1783. And so he gives this speech, a very short passionate speech and talks about how important it is to keep let the civilians be in charge the dangers of military rule the values of liberty and all the principles they've been fighting for this entire time and sacrificing for and just oppose anyone who tries to op- you might start a civil war you know value your honor you took oaths and just give me one more show of love for your country and patriotism and step down withdraw these threats, withdraw these memos, step down and let Congress do its work. And Washington, like I said, is never a good public speaker. (laughs) This does not work. (laughs) Like they just, they're just remain somber and just hostile, just looking at him angrily. They're not having it. They're not accepting this speech. This is not working. And uh, Washington is like, oh, come on guys. Look, okay, look, I have this letter I have this letter I got from a congressman like about, about some details about something. He's trying to find anything to persuade them. He pulls it out and he looks at it for a second. Uh, and something happens. Washington reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pair of glasses. And almost none of his, only a handful of officers have ever seen him wear these glasses. Most of them didn't know he was using them because he doesn't use them in public. He's vain, right? He's vain. He's concerned with his appearance. He's concerned with how he looks. He's always been very careful to cultivate this appearance he has. So he hasn't worn these glasses in public before. But his eyesight has started to fade. He can't read the letter he pulled out of his coat. So he pulls out these glasses. And he says randomly, Gentlemen, you'll permit me to put on my spectacles. For I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. And that does it immediately. He starts reading this letter, but 
Nobody's listening because they're crying. They are sobbing. They are ashamed. They are humiliated. And they just, they break down immediately because they realize that, you know, Washington was putting this all on the line too. He's doing everything they were doing. He was always with them. He was suffering like they were suffering. He was exposed to battle, all this stuff. And the Newburgh conspiracy collapses immediately, immediately, not even a, a second thought. As soon as Washington finishes reading the letter, leaves the building, everybody steps up like, we take it all back. This is over. We can't do this. Of course we can't do this. What were we thinking? They draft up this new memo, unshaken confidence in Congress. We love Congress. What were we thinking? They send it off immediately. And think about this for a second. One display of vulnerability. One dropping that discipline and reserve that he always had. Just showing that he was human. Showing them that, you know, I'm just a guy. I always have been. I try not to let you people know that, but I'm just a guy. Washington's greatest victory wasn't it was at Newburgh. Newburgh, this little little meeting house, this little wooden building, not in the battlefield, not at the Constitutional Convention, not in the White. There was no White House. Not in not as president. Washington's greatest victory was here, in my mind, when he saved America from itself, from itself, from a possible military dictatorship. Maybe he would have been in charge of it, but that wouldn't have been any better, would it? So that's going to pretty much wrap me up, I think. I've talked long enough, I believe. It is the holidays. You don't have time to listen to all this. Um, But what am I going to... i got to conclude. Okay. So Constitutional Convention. Washington is the president of Constitutional Convention. He's a symbol of national unity. He always has been. And... And, you know, he laid down his arms after he the war's over. He surrendered command of the army. And that was when George III, who him and Washington had more in common than I think either of them ever really wanted to believe in a lot of ways. But that's a whole different topic. I don't have time. But he says, like, you know, if Washington gives away command of his army, he's the greatest man who ever lived. And Washington does it. I wonder if George III still thought that. But it's all right. But as president, how did George do? Eh, could have done better. Could have done worse. Made some mistakes. But... You know, it's par for the course. Made mistakes, learned from them. Hey, the, the founding fathers were figuring this crap out as they went along. I mean, you know, you want to go back in time and tell, you know, there are there there errors in the Constitution. There are things that have not worked out so well in the long term. The Constitution is not perfect. So it's pretty close, but it's not perfect. So if you went back in time and confronted the founding fathers, like, why did you include the Senate? Why did you do the Electoral College? What? What did you do? And the founding fathers would be like, well, we did our best. That's what we did. You think this is easy? <laughs> the, there wasn't even a country. We had to keep the, you know, the southern states from running away. Was, what did you want us to do? But Washington, again, why was he president? Because he could be trusted with power, the enormous power the president later possessed. He personally led the federal army that was raised to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794. You know, pay your taxes, pay your taxes. You said, we don't like taxes. That's why we started the war. I said no taxation without representation. But now you have representation, and that means taxation. But yeah, he leads this army to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. Only time a president has ever led an army in the field. Ever, ever, ever. Washington led that army in 1794. Only time that commander-in-chief thing has actually been, you know, used in practice. Imagine this guy. You're like, you're like some Pennsylvania rebel walking around, and like <laughs> they're like, comes someone comes to you like, hey, uh, George Washington is leading an army towards us. George Washington? That that's 
Washington's coming. That's his name. That's a real living person who's alive and everybody knows and Washington is leading the army against us. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. The rebellion broke down basically immediately. But Washington serves two terms as president, does not go for a third term, as we all know, and dies in 1799 of a throat infection. His last words were supposedly, "'Tis well." Yeah, that about sums it up. Most important service, in my opinion, wasn't as president or in battle or at Mount Vernon or any of that. It was in those camps over the winter, maintaining and suffering with his army and at Newburgh. That's the Washington that we needed. Not the battle lord, not the Superman, not the um, not the guy with the little funny YouTube rap video, though I love that rap video. It's funny. But that's the big thing about Washington. What What made him unique? One of the only people of his time, or really any time, that could actually be trusted with power. And this was character. There are lots of things that made him a great general. His management skills, good at choosing subordinates, awareness of strategy and political dimensions of the conflict, all of that. He wasn't a great tactician or battle commander, no. But that wasn't what America needed. America needed, I guess, I don't know, a good person, not a great person. I mean, don't want to overstate this. There would have been a revolution without Washington. If he didn't live, there would have been a revolution. There were big forces and changes and causes at work that his presence and absence did nothing to change. Enormous trends, social, economic, cultural stuff, big events had happened regardless of any one person. But individuals are important. Someone was always going to have to take charge, lead the Continental Army, chair the Constitutional Convention, be the first executive. And we are extremely lucky as a country. I mean, you may think we're not in the greatest shape or whatever. Sure, but oh God, it could have been worse. Uh, We're extremely lucky that it was Washington and not Adams or Jefferson or Hancock or Gates or Hamilton or any of them as the first, because all of them showed less restraint with power than Washington did. He set precedents that have continued throughout American history about the restraint of power, not the abuse of power. And no one else could have been who Washington was. Yes, there was that enormous moral failing of slavery. And I think we can all acknowledge that was a moral failing. But no one else could have been him. No one else could have filled his shoes. He was unique. What historian James Flexner calls the indispensable man. Without Washington, American democracy, and by extension, modern liberalism, modern human rights, and all that stuff might not have survived past 1783 or 1787 or 1789 or 1776. It could have been a failed experiment. He was the exact right person for the task he was asked to do. The right person. The only person. And we can't forget Martha. Martha, who was exactly the right partner for this man. The only man and only woman for the job. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you enjoyed this second Unfiltered Soldiers. Again, I... This is actually the second time I've recorded this. I tried to make it shorter. That did not happen. But you know what? I hope you enjoyed it regardless. And if you think it was too long, uh, let me know in the comments. Give me feedback. I want to know. You know, if you if you like what you're hearing, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. The year is over. The year is over. This is the first year. The season isn't over. The season, this season, under soldiers, will continue until May. At the end of May is my last episode of this season. I plan to continue the podcast, but I will need time to work up new material. I'm trying to stay ahead of this stuff. But I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard this year so far. And please spread the word. Let people know about this thing I'm doing. 
and if you if you need to refer to them to something, make it. I have plenty of material, plenty of material. Show them, hey, you don't have to show them anything in order. Show them, hey, here's this cool episode about George Washington. He talks for too long about this guy. So maybe you like this. Maybe you won't. Or I'm always at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. That's my website. I work on it sometimes. Uh, unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, UNK Soldiers Pod. Always send me something. Drop me a line. Send me whatever you want to send me. Even if it's hate mail, I want to hear it. And I will see you guys next year. <laughs> next year. <laughs> right? Isn't that funny? No, it's not. I will see you guys next year. Check back. Same place. Same time. Next week. Because we're going to talk about the Nazis on Unknown Soldiers. Oh, <laughs> my